Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, in 1954, Dwight D. Eisenhower, 34th President of the United States, said this, Our government makes no sense unless it's founded on a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. It would be difficult to find a contemporary statement of the spirit of Gnostic religion that was more succinct and to the point today. It doesn't really matter what you believe, so long as your faith is sincere, is a common way of putting it. What matters ultimately is that we sustain the spirit of religion, that vague feeling of religion, not any particulars, no actual truth claims, because doctrine, particulars, create division. Gnosticism, if it's about anything, it's about this. It's about the, the embrace of a nebulous spirituality opposed to any so formal set of doctrines or beliefs. Detroit pastor Reinhold Niebuhr put it this way half a century ago. The unknown God of Americans seems to be faith itself. One popular American churchman described his faith in this way. I began every morning saying two words. I believe. Just those two words with nothing added. That is the ideal faith for many people. I believe with nothing added. Many scholars of religion have concluded that this in, is in, in reality the essential American religion. Religious feeling with nothing else. Not faith in Christ, but faith in faith. Faith in religious experience. Not encounter with a particular God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, a God who has said and done particular things, but intoxication with a spiritual experience. Religious emotion minus the creeds. Harold Bloom, author of the book The American Religion, suggests that the real religion of American culture is simply this centuries-old religion of Gnosticism. What appeals to the American mindset is a religion that offers us a vague sense of spirituality without all the encumbrances of church community. You could have stayed in your air-conditioned bed this morning without all the encumbrances of clear morality. You simply do what your heart tells you without all the encumbrances of specific doctrines or teaching. You wouldn't have to listen to me at all. This is very appealing, perhaps too appealing. The appeal of Gnosticized religion seems almost ubiquitous through the centuries. We know, for example, that Gnosticism was the first significant heresy that challenged the early church. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, traces this religious impulse back to the very days of the apostles. And the Colossian church appears to be facing some form of this trendy new Gnostic philosophy. 
a religion that appears to promise all the benefits of Christianity without all the boring dogma. The latest spiritual bestseller that homogenizes Christian faith with all other spiritualities, with all other religious options brought to us by our culture. It seems to me that this syncretistic option held much appeal for the Colossians for at least three reasons. First of all, it minimized the conflict that Christians had to face with the Roman Empire. This neo-Gnostic jumble of ideas made it possible for people to affirm both the lordship of Caesar and the lordship of Jesus Christ simultaneously. Being able to remain Christian while also loyally practicing the religion of the empire made it less likely that they would face persecution or rejection by their neighbors. But it also made them seem less fanatical and less narrow. Second, embracing this neo-Gnostic vision seemed to make Christians more tolerant within a pluralistic culture. We've all heard the accusation before that Christianity is intolerant. But this Gnostic syncretism enables them to see Jesus as, as the only Lord, to be seeing Jesus as the only Lord, always is viewed as sectarian, as too bigoted. But this religion of Gnosticism enables them to embrace all the good things about Jesus. But religion becomes a kind of smorgasbord, a buffet, from which you can take a little bit of everything. You can get a little bit of Judaism as your main course, a little bit more Gnosticism on the side, and, and even a little bit of Christianity for dessert. It's possible within this framework to affirm multiple spiritualities at the same time. And finally, the final appeal is this Gnostic tendency to divide the world up into neat categories of secular and sacred. And that provides a very convenient way of looking at things because you can have all your private religious values when it comes to your personal spiritual life. But when it comes to business or culture or politics, then your religion tended to not rear its head. It tended to not impose itself on your way of doing business in the world. You can have your life divided up neatly between the secular and the sacred. Today's text from the Epistle to the Colossians contains what appears to be a hymn. Jim didn't sing it for us, but it has a hymnic form. It's poetic, but it is also a creed. Just, just a handful of verses that are chock full of heavy theology. And I have to apologize for dealing with such heavy theology on such a humid day. But this, these verses are chock full of heavy theology and not just vague spiritual sentiment. Historically, Christians have nearly always recognized the importance of using poetry or music to communicate scriptural teaching. In the early church, most doctrine was sung so that it could be easily learned. Martin Luther loved to borrow tunes from the pubs and set to them words from scripture so that people could learn them and sing them quickly. The Gnostic temptation for, for Christian music has always been to express very little, to express only nebulous feelings about God without much real content. Years ago, the popular songs of praise were virtually devoid of theology. 
what someone calls 7-Eleven songs, songs with seven words that you repeat 11 times. Paul's hymn in the Colossians is none of that. Paul's hymn in the book of Colossians would make even Charles Wesley's hymns seem lightweight. Listen to the words of the hymn, and I won't sing it either. Jesus Christ is the exact image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn heir over all creation. All things were created by him, everything in heaven and on earth, made through him and for him. Christ created everything that can be seen and everything that can't be seen. He created kings and powers and rulers and authorities. Everything was created by him and for him. Before anything was made, he was already there. Everything is held together by him. And he is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the first to be raised from the dead, so that he would be far and above everything. God was pleased to have the fullness of his nature embodied in Christ, and through Christ, to reconcile all things back to himself. That includes everything on earth and in heaven. God made peace through Christ's blood, through his death on the cross. This Pauline hymn wastes no words. It is point by point challenging the loose and vague spirituality of the Gnostics with sound doctrine. It isn't enough, then, to have affection for Jesus. It isn't enough to simply see him as a great teacher. For Paul, we haven't said enough about Jesus until we confess him to be the express image of God, the creator of everything, the proper heir of everything in creation, and the only source of redemption for the whole cosmos. This language is particularly striking because if you think about it, Paul is describing someone, Jesus, who has died less than 30 years prior. There are still people around, people who are alive, who walked with Jesus, who shared meals with him. And now Paul is confessing that this person, Jesus, whom they knew, he's confessing Jesus only in terms that would befit God. When Paul says that Jesus Christ is the exact image of the invisible God, he uses this Greek word icon. And those of us who are computer literate know an icon. We know it as an image that leads us somewhere else, somewhere specific. You click the Microsoft Word icon on your computer screen and you find yourself in Microsoft Word. The idea is similar here. In Greek culture, an icon is a die or a stamp that's able to make exact reproductions of something, like the seal on a king's ring. Any impression made with that seal carries the full authority of the king. It makes his will fully present and fully obvious. Likewise, this word icon is used to describe a portion of a Roman passport used for travel throughout Roman lands, papers that identified the bearer as a citizen of Rome. The icon was the portion of those passports that gave a verbal description 
of the characteristics of the person carrying the passport, much like our photograph on our driver's license. So Jesus is the icon of God. He is the word made flesh. According to Paul, he is the, the physical embodiment of God's personhood. He's the seal of God stamped onto the world. Therefore, Jesus becomes the way God reveals himself to us. And Paul isn't alone in saying this. 1 John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Literally, the word used here for make him known is a word that we translate as exegete. The Son exegetes the Father for the world. That is, he reveals his character for the world. Jesus himself says in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And Hebrews 1.3 says the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. So Paul goes on in this section of Colossians, this hymn, to name names, to tell us the names, the identity of Christ. Christ is not only the very reflection, the icon of God's person, but he is also the proper heir of everything that belongs to God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Back in the fourth century, a theologian named Arius began to teach that this meant, since Jesus is the firstborn, that there was a time when the Son did not exist. After all, sons are born. They're not eternal. But Arius is actually missing several key points here. First of all, in human experience, sons are not only, sons are not, only not eternal, but neither are fathers. Fathers are not eternal. And so in the relationship of the father and son is not speaking about a priority in time. It's speaking about the character of their relationship with one another. Parents pass on. They share their nature with their children. Lobsters share lobster na nature with their children, right? A lobster child is no less a lobster than its parent. Human beings share human nature with their children. Our children are no less human than we are, though they sometimes act as if they are. God the Father, then, shares not human nature, but divine nature with his Son. And so the Son is no less divine than the Father. And of course, part of that divinity is eternality, timelessness. As Paul says of Christ, he is prior to all things, prior to creation, and in him all things are held together. And so the notion of Christ as God's firstborn is really a cultural reference to Christ's relationship to the Father as the inheritor, as the possessor of everything that belongs to the Father. In ancient culture, what belonged to the Father belongs to the firstborn Son. Even a superficial look at the Old Testament reveals that this phrase, firstborn, is used repeatedly, and it seldom means the one who's born first. David is described as God's firstborn, even though he's the youngest of eight boys. 
Israel is described as God's firstborn, even though there were many nations that existed before them. Paul, in writing this phrase, is challenging the Gnostic notion that Christ is merely some emanation from God, some lesser spiritual being with limited power and authority. But instead, Jesus, Paul says, is the express, the full image of God, existing before creation began, the rightful heir and owner of all things. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, wrote, when Jesus looks at his universe from the exalted throne at the right hand of the Father and sees the great galaxies whirring in space, the planets and the people upon this planet, and all the minute, minute details of life here, including the details of our individual lives, there is nothing that Jesus sees anywhere of which he cannot say, mine. One of the things that would surely stick in the craw of these early Gnostics is Paul's insistent repetition of this word, things. Gnostics dislike things. They despise matter. They find physical things repulsive and mundane. They fail to appreciate how a truly spiritual God could have anything to do with a physical world. Things they thought were to be used and cast aside. And eventually, if we play our cards right, the Gnostics taught, we can escape the prison house of the body, the wasteland of creation, and ascend to the perfect realm of the spirit. But Paul is a good Hebrew. Creation is not a grand accident. God is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. God is the redeemer of all things, everything in creation. His intention then is through Jesus Christ to remake the whole creation. In fact, Paul thinks that that new creation has already begun within the body of the church. All of this is far too tangible, too earthy, too palpable for Gnostic tastes. Gnostics prefer a disembodied spirituality to the very physical creation that we find in the Hebrew scriptures, to a very physical redemption. The psalm today said, God will not abandon my flesh to the grave. The promise of redemption is not just for disembodied souls, but for whole people, for, in fact, the whole creation. The Gnostic prefers a very private interior religion to the very, very corporeal and embodied faith that is revealed in Jesus Christ. And so Paul minces no words. Christ is not only Lord of your private spirituality. Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. He is the beginning, the first to be raised bodily from the dead so that he would have eminence above all things. God was pleased to have the fullness of his nature embodied in Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Paul says that includes everything in heaven and on earth. 
God made peace through Christ's blood through his death on the cross. Do you see the scandalous physicality of all this? God provides redemption for us by causing his very nature to be embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. What one commentator calls God translating himself into a language that humans could understand, the language of flesh and blood. But it gets more scandalous. Jesus, the very image of God, does something very unspiritual. He dies. He's executed on a Roman cross, permitting the political powers of the world to run roughshod over him, implying that they have power finally over God himself, implying that they have victory and authority. But it doesn't stop there. Paul says that Jesus physically rises from the grave, once and for all declaring that God does not despise bodies or physical matter. But what he has done for, for Jesus, God intends to do for us and for the whole creation. Death has no victory. The grave has no sting. Beginning with Jesus, like waves on the surface, shock waves on the surface of a pond, God is in the business of reclaiming creation and reversing the curse of death. If Jesus' physical death and resurrection, his physical death and physical resurrection, is the rock hitting the surface of the water, then the church is the first ring of shock waves spreading outward toward the rest of the world. As Paul says to the Colossian church, yes, at one time you were separate from God, but now because Christ has died, God has brought you back to himself. Christ's death, Paul says, makes you holy. But you must keep steady and firm in the faith. Don't move away from the hope of the good news that has, been, that has taken hold of you. This is the good news that you heard and has been preached to every creature under heaven. You see, the Gnostics love private revelation from God. They love special secrets that no one else has, special knowledge. They pride themselves in this kind of redemptive knowledge. But Paul's perspective is that the gospel is public news, that it belongs to the whole creation. And through the church, it is being embodied and revealed. The spirit of Gnosticism wants us to embrace nebulous, doctrineless spirituality, which enables us to re retreat into the private recesses of our own souls with God as our personal property. But for Paul, the gospel belongs to the whole creation. The church is the starting point, but it's not the end. Personal faith is necessary but it's only legitimate if it moves us into community and then finally moves us outward to embrace the whole world so deeply loved by God. There's an old story about a young agnostic soldier who's given a small silver cross by his grandmother before he left for war. 
He shoved it into his pocket, kept it there, but never gave it any thought until he found himself in a foxhole with shells exploding above his head. Suddenly, in great fear, this soldier fished the cross out of his pocket. Finding a chaplain, he thrust the cross in his face and said, I'm sure glad to see you. How do you work this thing? (laughs) This is a very American and very Gnostic approach to religion. One popular preacher put it flatly, Jesus recommends faith as a technique for getting results. That is the Gnostic appeal in a nutshell. Faith as a magic formula for self-preservation. Faith as a technique for self-improvement and self-advancement. Faith as a vague sentimentality. But the Apostle Paul commends to the Colossians and to us something more substantial. A steady and firm foundation in Jesus Christ. The express image of God, the rightful master of creation, the maker of everything visible and invisible, sovereign over all the rulers, all the powers, all the authorities, the redeemer of all things through his sacrificed body and blood, raised physically from the dead, and now the head of his body, the church, the first embodiment of his gospel for the world. But we need to be warned. We face a culture very much like that of the Colossians, We place a pluralistic culture with many religious and spiritual options. The Christian response to pluralism and relativism must not be to legalistically impose our truth on the unbeliever. Orthodoxy is not a sterile dogma that you club people over the head with like a dead fish. The Christian gospel must always be lived out it must always be embodied by a people. That's what makes it good news. Embodied first in the life and witness of Jesus Christ, and then in the life and witness of this body, Christ's body, the church. Dorothy Sayers puts it well. In Christianity, the dogma is a drama not beautiful phrases, not comforting sentiments, not vague aspirations to loving kindness, nor the promise of something nice after death, but the terrifying assertion that the same God who made the world lived in the world and passed through the grave and the gate of death. Show that to unbelievers, she says, and they might not believe but at least they may realize that here is something a person might be glad to believe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.